0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
1: This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Steven Grosser. Welcome to Money Beat. I am Paul Vigna. I'm Steve Grosser. And you know, Stephen, when it, when people talk about the markets these days and trading strategies and all of these things, how to make money, and all of it's usually about essentially
2: computer. Well,
1: yeah, yeah. Basically, it's like what's the best computer program for making money? That's how it seems like most of of investing is sort of is is presented to people these days.
2: Yes, the, yeah. the you know you're hearing less and less of the big traders who make big bets and right, you know, but.
1: They do still exist. Yes. They do still exist in the markets out there. And as a part of our Weekend Profile series, we talked to one of them. We have him on the phone. We're going to introduce him to in a second. But first, I want to introduce you to the writer who penned this piece, Tim Puko, reporter here at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Tim, what, uh, what attracted you to Bill Perkins?
3: So when I started at the Journal, I started by covering the natural gas commodity markets. And if you're in... The gas market. You know who Bill Perkins is. He's been a huge figure there for uh, probably more than a decade now, and was part of some one of like the most historic events ever, probably in all financial markets, um, the collapse of Amaranth Advisors, a $6 billion loss that ended up sinking that fund. Bill at the time was at Centaurus, which became one of the most successful hedge funds of its era and of all time. Uh, Bill helped make a billion dollars for Centaurus trading natural gas. And by the time I got to the journal, was one of several successful alumni from Centaurus to break out on his own uh, and create his own gas trading hedge fund.
1: Wow. So that is a lot to break it all down, to talk about that famous trade, which if you're in the markets, I'm sure you remember that. We have the man who runs Schuyler Capital Management these days, Bill Perkins, Jersey City's own. Hi, Bill. How are you?
0: I feel pretty old when you guys talk about decades in, in that trading after gas. Uh, it's so OK. It <laughs> uh, Bill, right. I
1: think I have one year on you. So imagine how old I feel. <laughs>
0: It's all right, but it's it's still exciting times in natural gas, and it's it's great to have been in one industry uh, trading to see it develop and change over the years.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so as Tim kind of alluded to, the the thing about you is, is this idea that you are not one of these computer driven quant guys. That you are a guy who actually kind of tries to use his own brain to pick winners and losers and then make those bets. Why? Why? Why do you still? Why is that still your style in two thousand and seventeen?
0: Yeah, I, I guess, you know, part of it applies to our market. We're a, a niche market in, such that um, there are physical constraints in terms of the amount of gas that can be stored, the amount of gas that's available to be withdrawn, and um, the, the competition between other fuels with natural gas that if you model the market well, we believe that, you can solve for a price that the market needs to clear as opposed to needing to follow sentiment. And we're just kind of old school um, economics guys and believing that, you know, a willing buyer and a willing seller have to meet at at a price at delivering the commodities market and that supply and demand will dictate that rather than flows and robots and machines.
2: One of the questions is, I mean, obviously you're fun because of, you know, the style, sees a little, uh, you know, their returns see a lot of volatility. Do you see resistance from investors
0: or it, does it make that harder to attract investors in this day and age? Well, you know, in within the energy sphere, natural gas is, is one of the more volatile uh, commodities, if not, right. you know, the most volatile, I guess you can say the electricity markets are more volatile. But um, so and we're also like kind of lumped in in the, in the general market, it's kind of like energy, everybody thinks oil. And when people like, uh, you know, the oil guys aren't making money and the quant guys, they kind of just pull their total energy allocation out. And then, uh, natural gas is, is not part of that. So we're, we're little understood globally, the the domestic natural gas market, and we, we get a lot of bad rap from crude oil where there may be less edge, whereas there's edge in natural gas. And so, you know, People tend to shy away thinking maybe it's just too volatile and there's no edge there. So, Bill, in 2015,
3: your fund gained 230 percent in one year. Why is it enough for you to go to investors and just put those numbers down on the
0: table and say, hey, don't you want to make some money? It, it, it You think it would be, but they actually get scared of that because they, they've seen some of the drawdowns. And they're like, well, if you can make 230, you can lose 100 or, you know, you can lose – X, which is outside their tolerance range, we incorrectly assumed starting the fund because we targeted a higher volatility that there would be this allocation for uh, a pension fund and investors uh, or family offices where they would want this higher volatility. So they wouldn't allocate as many dollars to us, but they would allocate some in order to capture some of that upside uh, since there was edge there. And we were incorrect. They'd much rather have smaller returns, lower volatility.
3: And that's kind of crazy to me because I mean, of course, I'm I'm a markets novice, do not have a business degree, but any I think anybody who knows even the smallest amount about markets, the thing that they know is diversity is is the way. And so it's kind of it's it's strange to me um, coming of age at a time when, you know, in the mid-2000s, when hedge funds were huge and everybody wanted to have, you know, the smart star trader who was going to make a ton of money for them. It's odd for me to hear now, well, you know, that kind of scares people. Um, and, they all want the same type of return profile. The diversity isn't really that important how How surprised have you been to learn that or 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 how how much of a sea change do you see this as in in the larger world of
0: finance yeah i i'm i'm talking talking a little bit out of school here um but I, what what I've seen is is that everybody has a boss and and you know You know, the fund of funds that invest in us, they have pension fund boss and the pension fund boss have the pensioners and the state and government, et cetera. And they've all kind of rushed into equities and and looked at this return. And they're kind of, I would say myopic or a little short-sighted. They're all held to this like monthly number. and, And there's a lot of pressure for lower volatility, consistent gains and if the stock market's not doing well, you know, they don't get in trouble, right? Because everybody's not doing well. And if it's doing well, if, if the stock market's doing well and you have some allocation to a commodity fund and, and it's not doing well, you, you kind of get, I guess, uh, wrapped on the hands, right? And so I, I feel like there's just been this en masse rush into equities and, and, and out and an outflow from other investments or I I won't call, you know, alternative investments. I'm holding up quotation signs over my head as I say (laughs) that and add up commodities. Right. (laughs) So, so we suffer with that. And, 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 you know, the, the first thing, you know, people do is, is, you know, it's like the main thing they look at is crude oil. Well, crude oil, you know, there's still, they're very sophisticated investors out there, but there's still people who, who think well? If crude oil's down, then you know I, I shouldn't allocate to these hedge funds because they're not going to make money. But you know there's people out here who're short. Who you know I've made the majority of my returns from being short natural gas. Wow. I would say ninety percent of it.
1: We are talking to Bill Perkins of Schuyler Capital Management. You are listening to the Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal.
0: If only life had a remote control, you could pause or rewind. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute risk test today at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
1: For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Welcome back to Money Beat. Paul and Stephen here in the studio in New York City with Tim Pucco, Wall Street Journal commodities reporter today, Bill Perkins of Schuyler Capital Management. And Bill is the subject of our weekend profile written by Tim Puko, and uh, Tim, I believe you have a question that you yeah, want to well, jump in on here. Yeah, well, one
3: thing that, that we've heard Bill essentially talk a lot about, and Bill, correct me if I'm wrong. Essentially, what you're talking about is fear. People are scared to lose their jobs. People, investors are scared to underperform. You know, the next investor, and that has created a lot of hesitation throughout financial markets and that, have, that has really changed the behavior of fund managers on the whole. The one thing I've heard about you, people have, have described you as somebody who, quote unquote, lacks a fear gene. I've heard you described as a cowboy. I think even you yourself have talked about your propensity for dealing with risk. So um, you know, explain to me why the volatility does not scare you and how you deal with it, like how you use it in your favor.
0: Yeah. Um, well, one one of the advantages of, you know, people leaving the market and the lack of allocation is, is that as a person whose job is to warehouse risk of, of different groups, whether it's producers hedging or or end users buying to hedge or just inflation hedgers or speculators, is that for every dollar unit at risk, my edge goes up. Right. When back in the day, you know, back in the old days when there were like you know, the Enrons, the Sempras, the Amaranths, you know, there were ten fundamental hedge fund shops and probably like ten merchants, you know, natural resources group, etc. Our our theoretical edge per per dollar per trade was was much lower. Right? And and so, you know, now it's higher. The the flip side of that is is that liquidity and the price of being wrong is greater. But I think all in all, it, it's 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 better for us. One of the questions, um, and we you know we were talking about this
2: before the show. Is can you go through some of you know the kind of the big bets that were winners and some of
0: you know your losers over the years? You know, going back to embracing risk. You know, in, in our market, we solve for what we call weather normal, and since the weather is such a big uh, uh, determining factor in 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 supply and demand, and so. When you you know get all your information, you have your pipeline flows, you have your charts et cetera you you make uh, risk reward decisions based on whether normal, and you have to be mentally prepared for some uh some bad events to happen that to to go against your position, yet you still have to make the bet the trade right uh if you will and i i think you know one of one of the biggest um uh successes I had was I felt that the market was mispriced for a a situation called containment. And essentially, at that time, the United States of America had a lot less storage for gas. And, you know, based on my models and my analysis, uh, I saw that we were heading to a point where basically storage would be overflowing and the price of natural gas would have to drop so low, such as to induce producers to just turn it off, right? To just stop producing. And, you know, the market didn't see it that way in the beginning, and I layered basically every single profitable dollar I had the quarter before into the trade, and, you know, lo and behold, it happened. It happened at the last minute, and it was it was very profitable. Um, on the flip side, solving for weather normal, I think it was uh, 13, 14, we had the polar vortex. Yes. Um, it's one of the coldest winters on record, <laughs> yep. and, and, you know, it was like, well, if, even if it's Very cold. I'm gonna be okay, right? I have this trade. It seems very bearish. We have supply growing All the all the things that a trader would say to be bearish, right? And and so It was cold and then it was cold and then it was colder and then it was colder and then it was like record cold right like beyond what you thought could happen or would happen or that you would see in your lifetime and it hurt it hurt bad and so you know, a lot of my other fundamental traders, the, you know, it was like a little little mini uh Houston meltdown, right? <laughs> where, where most of the fundamental traders are. They were distraught. And, you know, I was pretty much like, this is what we do. You know, we're going to, you know, if you're a boxer, you're going to get punched. As a matter of fact, if you box long enough, you probably get knocked down. You might not get knocked out, but you definitely get knocked down. But we all get punched and it's just part of our job, you know. So instead of just being destroyed about the returns and what I'm going to tell my investors, et cetera. It's like, they pay me to get in the ring and mix it up every day to do a uh, great, uh, analysis to take these risks. And this is what I do. And so, you know, looking back at the trade as we you do a post-mortem analysis, when things go wrong, it's like, you know, you'd make the same trade, you know, 99.999 times out of a hundred, uh, you may, You may change your risk limits or manage your risk a little bit differently, but that's just what we do. We live by the sword. We die by the sword.
1: Hey, let's talk about 2006 and Amaranth, the the trade that you made, which was a really big trade. I mean, Tim talked about it at the beginning. It's one of the biggest uh, collapses of a hedge fund on record. I mean, I remember when it happened. It was bad. You were... What's interesting is you didn't just kind of like make a bet uh, from, from Tim's story. You were trying to bet every single day to build up a position against this what did you see going on there and why were you so keen
0: to make that big bet well um there was a at the time you know the analysis and what was going on with the trade what i believe you know amaranth's analysis was is that if it's cold we will run out of gas in winter and that you know the spread between march april will will
3: explode there was a right. hurricane element too, weren't they thinking that there there would be some hurricane and then
0: that would add to
3: a potential shortage that, that you're talking yeah. about in the winter?
0: Yeah, leading up to the winter, they had kind of I, I what I believe was like some sort of butterfly, you know, complex uh, spread where they would have you know short Oct, long Jan, Feb, and March, and short April. Um, and you know, I wasn't on every on the opposite side of every part of that trade. Uh, but, you know, I took a, a big interest in the March-April part because, you know, I, I thought it was fantastical to to run out of, of, of gas, right? It would take, like, the most extreme, extreme, extreme events to happen, and it was being priced as if it was a certainty. And I don't know if that was a strategy of Amaranth, is to maybe, you know— have the reflexive principle basically by buying as many lots would would change the price. It had that effect. Um, but it it was, it was scary times because, you know, you had up the, the cost for Amareth to enter and exit that position was extreme, was outside, you know, the the realm of, of what's reasonable logical. It It was, it seemed irrational to most of the market participants and some of them, Although eventually, right blew up before they ever got to see the chance to see it, and and you know that was another lesson for me at that time, on you know liquidity and how irrational the market can be before you know it 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 gets back in the line, and so amaranth, you know, was wrong, and and there would there's nothing per se too bad about being wrong about that trade, like. Whatever the analysis is wrong, what was wrong about it? What was really you know interesting is how large they put it on. Their their entry and exit fee was just too high, too too high to 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 have that trade on because it inflated the market one way and it exploded disastrously uh, in a disaster the other way. It, it, that trade helped build probably 600 bcf of storage fields. It changed pricing for storage it allowed people to like build infrastructure under that trade it it was it was it was a fantastic trade one of the
2: questions and this is a line you know you talked about in your story was just that you know the volatility in the gas trading business causes you know a lot of traders to sort of participants to sort of burn out i i just why do you why have you i guess persisted um you know to continue trading
0: um, we, we have a motto, uh, you know, a little cliche. We say the name of the game is to stay in the game in natural gas. You know, it, it's it'll hurt at times, but eventually, over the long run, the opportunities will be presented and the risk reward ratio um, will will just be tremendous. Um, so, I guess I'm an internal optimist, p- <laughs> partly. And you know, one thing about being a trader versus is um, another profession. You know, there's been studies done that the average person needs five to seven positive events to make up for one negative event Hmm. and you know and by and large if you're a trader even if you're like one of the best traders in the world that just won't work for you psych you know with your psyche if it takes five positive events to make up for one negative event right because even if you're 70 percent right you're having you know a couple you're having a a lot of bad days right and and the best traders in commodities maybe if they're 60 percent right so like 40 percent of their days are bad days so you, you have to have a certain temperament and I believe the ones that have have stuck with trading throughout the years have been able to maintain that temperament. It's such that they don't need an excess of positive news to make up for, for bad news so that they can stay focused on, you know, the fundamental, uh, the uh, analysis that needs to be done at hand, make the correct decisions, et cetera. But if you're depressed and flying off the handle, Every time something goes bad, or a weather event goes your way, or some you know uh, black swan event happens in, in in your field, you just aren't going to survive. You're just not going to have the 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 mental fortitude, the emotional fortitude uh, to to do it. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Like there's there's you know people are wired differently, and that, and that's why I think there's a lot, a lot of people who are probably extremely bright. Um, um, very intelligent, but cannot be traders. So if I could tie a couple things together
3: here on on that point, Brian Hunter was a guy, Brian Hunter was the the gas trader at Amaranth. He was a guy who was regarded as super smart, as somebody who was unfazed a lot of times by the tremendous risks he was taking. Uh, And as you alluded to, he, he was actually kind of right in the bet that he made but the timing did not play out for him, and he blew up before, before you know, he could ever be right. Um, he was a fundamental trader. Why couldn't the same thing that happened to Brian Hunter, who had been very, very successful for years before that disastrous blow-up?
0: Why couldn't that happen to you? Well, if I st- I would say two things about Brian uh Brian Hunter's trade, you, you know, without specifically talking about Brian, you know, which you can infer about Brian Hunter, is I, I think, you know, I have made similar mistakes to Brian in 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 terms of I think his biggest mistake was misjudging liquidity. You know, there there's a certain aspect he 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 may have done an analysis and like if he he caught it the winner, if the weather went is, you know, maybe the probability, maybe it was a favorite to lose you know or maybe he could get out but he misjudged liquidity and his exit price in and out or maybe he thought that he would be able to you know as a lot of people say dictate the price based on his size and i think he you know that was his you know his risk management in terms of managing his position and understanding the liquidity of the market and what if i'm wrong i think that's where he his biggest error was aside from his fundamental assumption right at that time, I mean, you know, the next winter, he probably would have had everybody running, you know? Uh, So I've been fortunate enough that my lessons in learning about liquidity and understanding liquidity and what can happen have been smaller. And I've gone through the school of, I'm holding quotations up again, hard knocks (laughs) in commodity. And and so that I am now hyper aware of, of this issue, not saying it can't happen, Right. Um, you know, liquidity tends to vaporize and 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 um, disappear when you need it the most. But I feel that I'm better prepared. So let me ask you this:
1: you know, we talked at the very top of this podcast, kind of mentioned the whole idea of computers coming in and taking over Wall Street and the bots and and all that stuff, you know. But you are still doing things the way you've been doing them. Has I'm trying to wonder what, why people have been so you know enthusiastic about adopting computerized programs have the markets changed or have people changed and how much longer can you keep doing things just the way you're doing them or have you changed over the years as well
0: i think there's you know you know there's, there's lots of ways to skin a cat to use an old saying um you know in the the bots tend to just go in and try and scrape money from the existing orders right they try and figure out what the orders are uh, get in front of them a little bit and 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 scrape you know pick up nickels in traffic mm-hmm. as as I like to say and, and mm-hmm. you know that's not my specialty. there's people out there doing it, some of them are successful, some of them not i I don't know what the long run is going to be in our particular field of um, natural gas trading I just tend to see a much better risk reward scenario in fundamental analysis um it's not as consistent as hey, let me go run my bot and I'm going to scrape these nickels every day. But, you know, we sit and wait for either the weather or infrastructure or producer hedging or end user speculators to create these distortions in the market that we get paid to warehouse and, and they create fantastic opportunities in, in our market. So it, it's not, you know, in, uh, in terms of like equities where I, I think you can – solve it a little bit better and and run some of the other hedge fund managers out. Um, This, you know, I guess there are those guys who are day trading every day and they're still your Warren Buffett's right. Who are are, are elephant hunting and finding undervalued companies, right? The bots will, are not going to do that. At least not yet. Unless people start listening to them saying this one's undervalued, let's go buy it. Um, And in my market, you know, the bots are not, uh, yet there or program training is not yet there to do all the analysis, track all the infrastructure, track all the new changes in order to solve for, you know, a clearing price. All
1: right. One last quick one. Quick yeah, one
2: I one got, one one got one a quick question. Three, just uh, Tim's piece talks about some of the wagers you made with colleagues over the years. I was wondering if you could just tell us what was your what's your favorite sort of wager with a, a colleague? You had the one with the guy had to, what, forty eight hours to run to from to Las bike, Vegas? Bike. From Las
0: Vegas, yeah, the bike, the bike, yeah, that was a that was that was fun, you know. Um, it, it's not my favorite one. I lost. right? Yeah, I was gonna say fun. You <laughs> lost on that one. Yeah, I mean, driving driving across country in a van tracking tracking a guy biking at night is is whose whose you know, body is not built for biking at all. And then you know all the arguments <laughs> of the controversy of the bike and whether you had you know drafting illegally or mechanical assistance. But I, I think the ones that like. I really like is when I get on side of, you know, it's usually like the prop bets are human versus like this fantastic achievement, right? Like this, this, this great achievement. And it's like, you know, we, you know, most of the bets we make are either disciplined bets or some sort of like, you know, it could be done, but like, you're probably going to wind up, you know, sitting on your couch watching game of Thrones. (laughs) And so the the latest one is, is a friend Walter who I, I actually, Helped him on his side because he didn't even have the money to make the bet. Where he was 33 plus percent body fat and he had to get to below 10 in six months. And hmm. you know, he's not, he's not, he's not an Olympic athlete, never was, etc. And basically, he went out it and, and you know, he, he did it. Wow. He, he did it. He, wow. At the end of the story is he did it. And so, he should write you know, a diet book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, go ahead.
2: What's that? I said he should write a diet book.
0: Well, he, you know, the post picked up the stories on good morning America now from it, you know, because a lot of people came in and bet both sides on that I think there was like a million or a million or two on on total in total wagers. You know, I I basically gave the guy a hundred thousand dollar free roll to try and get his life back in order. And I said, listen, (laughs) do not lose. (laughs) (laughs) Don't, Don't do not lose. You know, I was like, Hey buddy, but, uh, he didn't let me down, you know. I have faith in him. I have faith in the, you know, the man. You know, there's a yeah. saying, always bet the man, right? Like they can do it and and he pulled it out, which, wow. you know, he was crying, you know, like working out three times a day,
2: oh overworking gosh. out, coming yeah.
0: back, icing his legs. He basically became like the super Olympian athlete for 6 months in order to make this goal.
1: Wow. All right. Bill Perkins runs Skylar Capital Management, a lion of the natural gas uh, commodities market. Bill, thank you for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will catch up with you soon. You have been listening to Money Beat from The Wall Street Journal. Follow The Wall Street Journal on your favorite podcast app. Search WSJ on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and any Amazon Alexa device. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously.